Take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 16. We're going to look at the last uh, section this morning. We're going to look at verses 16 through 33, John 16, 16 through 33. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 959. We're going to wrap up what has been uh, called and is called, uh, commonly known as the farewell discourse section of John's gospel. We've been in this for a while now. Uh, where Jesus has spent uh, an extended time with his 11 disciples after Judas left to go betray him. So that was at the end of chapter 13, and now we're finishing it up here in the end of chapter 16. And during this time, he taught them, he, he prepared them. Uh, it's like, a, like a, a, a concentrated effort to teach and prepare them for his departure and for the Holy Spirit's arrival uh, that he would send after he returned to the Father. This, this morning, we're going to listen to Jesus' final words to his disciples until after his resurrection. These aren't his final, final words, but we need to think about this here for a moment, okay? These are just, this is hours before his, his crucifixion, before he's going to die. These are his final words to his disciples in this room before everything goes crazy in their world, Okay? They still don't have a clue that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. They still don't have a clue that he would be arrested, that he would be wrongfully tried and condemned, that he would be executed on a cross for crimes that he did not commit. They have no idea, even though in other gospels we're, it's, we're, we're told it, it's clear. He's made this clear to them multiple times. And even though here in the upper room he's telling them that he's going away, they just don't know. Okay? They just don't know. It's been said that last words are lasting words. And that is certainly true for John who wrote this, these words down, who remembered them and wrote them down, these last things that our Lord said to him and the other 10 disciples that night. And although Jesus initially spoke these words to those 11 disciples, these are life-changing, lasting words that have impact, a life-changing and lasting impact on all who put their hope in him because this is the word of God, and I want it to be the word of God that comes out to us, I want to pray, and then we will dig in together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you didn't just give it and then rely on human uh, intuition, rely on human ability to retain it and, uh, and, and continue it and pass it down. But you carefully guarded it and guided it through the mouths of your servants so that today we could have it and trust it knowing that it is good and right and it leads us to Jesus. And so this morning we pray, even as we listen to Jesus' words himself, that you would help us to behold him in all his glory, to rejoice in him and to have peace in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. It's all about learning to dance in the rain. When life hands you lemons, you make lemonade, right? You are where you are because that's exactly where you want to be. Every cloud has a silver lining. Just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and keep going. Recognize any of these? Chances are you've heard at least one of these self-help cliches before, but did any of them actually help you? Are any of them actually believable, right? Now, now we, we're kind of shaking our head, rolling our eyes, 
at these cliches, but I'm willing to bet that, that at one time or another, we have all wished that getting rid of the hard things in our lives was as easy as slapping a slogan onto our problems like a bumper sticker on the back of a car, right? I want to tell you a truth this morning that's going to come from God's word, that it's going to be our, 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 the main idea, the main point of our text, and it's this. A life in Christ is not free from suffering, despite what some people might try to tell you. A life in Christ is not free from suffering, but it is a life full of joy and peace. Why? Because Christ is our conquering king. Now, that is not just a Christian version of a self-help cliche that's supposed to make you feel good, but nobody really actually believes. This is a rock solid, a steadfast promise that Jesus himself will make in this passage to give real and lasting courage to these disciples who are spiraling out of control. And it will give real and lasting courage to all who feel like their life is spiraling out of control, but who put their trust in Jesus Christ. So let's, let's dig in this morning and look at the first part of this promise. A life in Christ is a life full of joy. John chapter 16, we'll start in verse 16. Go through 20. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while, you will see me, and, and because I am going to the Father. They said, what is this he's saying in a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Three times in these five verses, John repeats this phrase, in a little while, you won't see me. Again in a little while, you will see me. And the disciples are totally perplexed by it, right? Especially by this phrase, in a little while. Like, what does he mean by that? What, what's going on here? What does he mean by in a little while? Jesus used that phrase at the beginning of this entire farewell discourse back in John chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, verse 33, he said, little children, remember that? Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, but just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And even though he made it clear in, verse, in chapter 14 that he was going to the Father, that he was going to prepare a place for them, that he would come back and get them, verse 17 here makes it clear that the disciples were still baffled about that statement as well. What does it mean he's going to the Father? It's safe to say that the general state of mind of these disciples throughout the entire time in the upper room with Jesus was one of confusion, okay? We could just summarize that whole, whole thing. You ever been confused by something that Jesus has said? Something you've read in the rest of God's word? Now look, we have the Holy Spirit. We live on this side of Christ's death and resurrection and exaltation and the sending of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit to help us understand all that God has freely given to us in Jesus Christ. And yet, there are still times when we find ourselves reading and rereading a scripture passage and multiple times and scratching our heads because we just can't wrap our minds around what it's saying. 
You ever been there? We need to remember that the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit yet to help them understand what was going on here. They had the promise of the Holy Spirit, but that promise was mixed in with all the other confusing things that they heard that night from Jesus. And so, even so, though, they were not left alone to try to figure it all out. Why? Because Jesus was still with them. He was still with them. He was still there talking to them and teaching them. And in verse 20, he elaborated on what he meant by the statement that he made in verse 16. In a little while, you will no longer see me. Verse 16. Verse 20, truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. His disciples would soon no longer see him because he was going to die, and his body would be sealed up in a tomb. They would weep and mourn over his death, while those who crucified Jesus would rejoice that they had finally gotten rid of him. They would rejoice because they would think that they had won. What the world wouldn't realize in that moment was that Christ went to the cross willingly, right? Why? He went to lay down his life for his friends, for all those whom the Father had given to him. This is language we've heard him say in in John's gospel. In order that those people, in order that we would become children of God and one with Christ through faith in his finished work. We'll, We'll see this theme again in chapter 17 next week. As Jesus prays, not only for himself, not only for these 11 disciples, but did you know that Jesus prays for you? Did you know that it's captured in scripture? Think about that for a minute. The one who spoke creation into being speaks on your behalf as a follower of Jesus. It's incredible. That that work, that finished work that we sang about this morning, it is finished, he has done it. That work was proven to be finished through his resurrection. Again in a little while you will see me, verse 16. Verse 20, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. He's talking about the resurrection there. In a matter of hours, the disciples would be grief-stricken because of Jesus' death. Not only would they lose their master and teacher and friend, but all of their messianic hopes would be lost as well. They they pushed all their chips into that basket with him. Thought he was going to overthrow Rome and, and come and set up the earthly kingdom of Israel. All that goes away in a matter of hours when he dies. But listen to this. Their messianic hopes needed to die with Christ, so that these disciples would be ready to see what it truly means for Jesus to be the Messiah. That was in a matter of hours. In a matter of days, their sorrow would turn to joy. Jesus said so, not because Jesus wasn't really dead after all, like, huh, fooled you, got you good, didn't I? No, but because he died. The Messiah died, but the Messiah defeated death, and he rose from the grave. That is a much better Messiah than anything you or I could come up with. In these next verses, Jesus used a familiar illustration to express the kind of joy that the disciples would soon experience. Look at verses 21 and 22. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she's given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now. 
but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy from you. Now, I understand the irony that Jesus, a man, is telling 11 men about the pain and joy that a woman experiences when giving birth to a child. But I can assure you that as the author of life, see John chapter 1, see Genesis chapter 1, as the author of life, Jesus was perfectly qualified to give this illustration to these men. And although these men could not know the physical labor pains firsthand as Jews, they were certainly familiar with the Old Testament prophet's description of Israel as a pregnant woman having labor pains, but is just unable to deliver, much like Israel being the vine in the Old Testament who was unable to produce fruit. And whether Jew or non-Jew, listen, anybody who's ever seen a woman in labor can understand that there is significant pain involved in leading up to the birth of a child. And if we think back to Genesis chapter 3, we know why significant pain is involved. The pain is one of the consequences of humanity's sinful rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden. After the author of life made man and woman in his image, he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. But after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent's temptation, Satan's temptation, and ignored God's word, they sinned against him in every aspect of life, every aspect of fruitfulness that they were to experience, from childbearing to crop production and everything in between. Every aspect of that was marred by pain and toil and labor. Pain and toil and labor. But along with the consequences of sin... In Genesis 3 came a promise of hope. And we know this promise, hopefully by now. It would be through the painful birth of children that one day a descendant of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head after the serpent crushed his heel. The heel crushing would cause pain and sorrow that would last for a short while. But the head crushing would lead to restoration and rejoicing that would last forever. Sorrow may come in the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? Right now, you will weep, but soon you will rejoice. Now, Jesus probably didn't intend for his disciples to connect this woman in labor illustration all the way back to Genesis 3 in this moment after all, right? He said back in verse 12, there are still many things I have to tell you and you can't bear any of them right now, right? That's pretty loaded for them to grasp when they can't even figure out why he's leaving. The point he was making in this illustration was that the disciples were about to experience suffering and pain like a woman does in labor. It was going to be intense. It was going to be overwhelming. But their sorrow would not last. It would turn into joy. It would give way to joy that springs from embracing new life as a mother embraces her newborn child. And that joy would be just as secure in their hearts as they were in the Father's hand. See John 10, 30. No one would be able to snatch it from them. Jesus said, no one will take away that joy. Just as no one will snatch you from my Father's hand or mine, for that matter. And the reason that was true is because the author of life is also the serpent-crushing Savior who came to bear the consequences of sin in order to give sinners new birth. John chapter 3, new 
birth into eternal life. The author of life is also the author and perfecter of our faith. And as Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, it was for the joy that lay before him that he endured the pain and suffering of the cross. Yes, sorrow first, joy, everlasting joy forever after that. He scorned the shame. He despised the shame. And then what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could he do that if he's dead? He can't unless he rises from the dead. Eternal life and eternal joy come through Christ. Why? Because he is the risen and reigning king. In these next verses, Jesus told his disciples how they might experience that fullness of joy. Look at verse 23 and 24. In that day, you will not ask me anything. Truly, I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive so that your joy may be complete. Jesus began this section in verse 16 by saying, in a little while, which, which had the very near future in view, right? The next few hours, the next few days in which he would die and then rise from the dead. Here in verse 23, he said, in that day, which pointed beyond the resurrection to the time after he returned to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit, the new covenant age. He was telling them how to live in the, fulfill, uh, in the fullness of joy as spirit indwelled, new covenant believers who were left to live in this world while they looked forward to his return and their final hope with him, final home with him. The way they would live in the fullness of joy was through prayer. Ask, ask. Up to this point, the disciples had certainly asked Jesus about a lot of things and for a lot of things, but they hadn't asked anything in his name because they were asking him directly, nor had they asked the Father for things in Jesus' name while Jesus was with them. But Jesus told them that after he returned to the Father, after he sent the Spirit, they wouldn't need to ask him about anything because the Spirit would give them understanding. Paul elaborates this in 1 Corinthians 2. And not only that, but they could and they should ask the Father for anything in his name and trust that the Father would give them what they ask for. Now, we've already seen Jesus touch on this ask anything in my name theme in chapters 14 and 15 because they would have his Holy Spirit dwelling in them and guiding them into all truth and reminding them of everything that Jesus said. The disciples who, would, who were called and who would, because of the Holy Spirit, remain in Christ and in his love and, who in, uh, and his words would remain in them these disciples would ask the Father things consistent with who Christ is and what Christ wants. This is what it means to ask in Jesus' name. And the Father would gladly give them what they asked for because he's glorified when they produce fruit and prove to be his disciples. Jesus says here, ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be complete. Isn't that great? Brother, sister, is your joy complete? Is your joy complete? You know what? When my joy is lacking, I find most often it's because my prayer is lacking. Perhaps that's true for you too. 
Now, that doesn't mean that if we want joy, we've got to make sure that we're going to pray 30 prayers a day, right? It doesn't mean that, that we need to spice up our prayers with eloquent language. No, in order for us to get joy from prayer, we need to see it for what Christ intends it to be, an overflowing expression of the perfect loving union we now share with him and the Father through the indwelling spirit. Prayer, prayer grows our dependence upon Jesus and prayer grows our confidence in Jesus as we approach the throne of grace with boldness and ask the Father in Christ's name so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The more we ask the Father in Christ's name, the more we see the Father answer for Christ's glory. And the more we see Christ's glory through answered prayer, the more our hearts will overflow with joy and thanksgiving in Christ himself. Listen, not just in the answered prayer. In Christ himself. The more this joy will be in us, his joy will be in us, and our joy will be made complete in him. As the old hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Hear this. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. James 4, 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6 that the Father knows the things they need before they ask him. But he, he didn't follow it up with, with this. So there's no need to ask. The Father knows what you need, so don't worry about it. That's not what he said. No, in chapter 7 of Matthew, he said, ask. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone, the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, to him the door will be opened. Are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? This is why we have a prayer request section in our care cards. Told you I'd get back here. It's why we have a prayer meeting on the first Tuesday of every month. These aren't just things to, we do these because this is what churches do. We do these because we believe what Jesus just told us to do. It's why we encourage you to find someone before you leave today and pray with them. Even if you just have to write it down and hand them the sheet. It's why we should be praying for and with one another throughout the week. Listen, Ask, ask, and you will receive, why, Jesus says, so that your joy may be complete. Our God is a loving and generous and kind heavenly father who wants, do you hear that? Who wants his children to ask him for things, who delights in answering our prayers. I wish I could be that kind of father. My kids come to me with all kinds of requests. Sometimes I'll listen and sometimes I'm like, not now. Right? You know this. You feel this. Did you know that God, as loving, good, and heavenly Father, 
When you come to him, he never says, not now, I'm busy. Not now, I'm too tired. Do it yourself. He doesn't say that. What does he say? Ask. Ask. I'm ready to listen. But he also wants us to learn what to ask him for. I think we could just default to, to just ask everything, and God will help you sort it out, okay? Do that. But, but his word also helps us understand how to reshape the things that we ask for. James 4.3 says, You ask and you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Paul Tripp says that prayer is never about asking God to submit his awesome power to your will and plan. Convicting, right? Prayer is an act of personal submission to the always right will of God. We grow in dependence upon Jesus and confidence in Christ through prayer. It can be easy for us to default to asking God to change our circumstances because we don't really know how else to pray in the midst of them. And listen, if that's all you know how to pray for right now, it's better to ask than not to ask. Do you know that? Jesus says, ask, ask, and it will be given to you. It's better to ask than not to ask. But prayer does not always change our circumstances. You know this. When we truly pray in Christ's name, though, that is, in according to who he is and what he wants, that kind of prayer will always result in change in our hearts. Circumstances might not change, but our hearts surely will. So that even in the midst of hardship and sorrow, our joy may still be complete. This is about joy in Christ, not about God doing what we want. The Apostle Paul asked, pleaded, begged that God would take away, three times he did this, that God would take away the thorn in his flesh. But instead of removing Paul's suffering, you know what God said? You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, not now, I'm busy. He listened. He heard Paul's asking. And then he told him his always right will. So Paul, it's better for you that this isn't removed. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. It's my power that is shown to be perfect in your suffering. And you know what Paul's response was? God, no, it wasn't. You know what his response was? Okay. I will boast all the more gladly in my sufferings, in my weakness. Why? So that Christ's power may reside in me. In other words, you know what? God's right. My joy is complete in Christ, even when my circumstances remained unchanged and my suffering does not go away. A life in Christ is not free from suffering. It's not. But it is a life full of joy. And it's also a life full of peace. Look at verse 25. I've spoken these things to you in figures of speech. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, 
But I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day you will ask in my name, and I am not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. Throughout his time on, the, on earth with the disciples, Jesus had spoken to them about many things, right? But he often veiled these things in, in the use of symbols and metaphors and other figures of speech, a.k.a., or, or for instance, the, the woman uh, giving labor, right? Or the vine and the branches. We've, we've seen these things just in the last couple chapters. He did this not because he didn't want his disciples to understand the realities behind these things, but because he knew that they wouldn't fully understand them or be able to even bear these things until after his death and resurrection, until after he returned to the Father, until after he sent the Holy Spirit to help them. After the resurrection, he would tell them plainly about the Father and explain more fully the plan and the mission of redemption that he just summarized for them in verse 28 right here. After Christ's ascension to the Father, the Holy Spirit would come and guide them into all truth by taking from what is Christ and declaring it to them. And on that day, they would be so bound up in the perfect union of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they would have unrestricted access to the Father through prayer. Jesus said, I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He didn't mean that he would stop praying for them. We'll see how he prays for them and for us in chapter 17 as our intercessor. What he was getting at here is that through his death and resurrection, he was gonna give them all and all believers the means to go directly to the Father themselves. To go directly to the Father ourselves. This is one of the reasons we primarily pray to the Father in Christ's name and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as the Father loves the Son, so the Son has loved the disciples. And just as Jesus has total access to the Father because of the perfect love they share with one another, so too would his disciples also have total access to the Father because of the perfect love that they share with him and the Son through the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, also shares in the perfect unity and love of the Father and the Son. It's a good thing that Jesus loved them perfectly because their love for him had a lot of room to grow, right? Look at verse 29. His disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Jesus responded to them, do you now believe? Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Oh, these poor disciples. They continued only to prove their need for the Holy Spirit left and right, didn't they? And we continue to relate to that need so well, don't we? Even as we have the Holy Spirit. We forget to depend on him. One author commented on these verses and said, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which think it, thinks it no longer exists. 
In essence, the disciples just said, ah, yeah, we get it now. To which Jesus replied, no, little children. No, my dear sheep, you don't. You don't, but you will. Remember in chapter 13 when Peter was so adamant that he would lay his life down for Jesus only to have Jesus tell him that he would deny his Lord three times before the rooster crowed? Here we see that Peter would not be the only one to fail Jesus. Judas went out to betray Jesus. All the rest of the disciples are going to fail him just as, work, just as bad. His betrayal and arrest were almost here. The hour is coming and has come, Jesus said. When Jesus was arrested, they all fled the scene and they abandoned him. They left him alone. They left him alone because they were afraid. And they were afraid because they didn't understand what was happening. Confusion breeds fear. We know this, right? But Jesus understood and he knew that they would soon understand too with the help of the Holy Spirit whom he was sending. Even though they would leave him alone, he had promised not to go away and leave them alone as orphans. He would send them his Holy Spirit to be with them and to be in them forever. And even though they would leave him alone, Jesus had peace because he knew that the Father was with him. The Father is faithful to the Son because he loves the Son. So too the Son is faithful to his disciples because he loves them even when they fail to remain faithful to him. Well, that's a good word, isn't it? Everything Jesus told them throughout the farewell discourse from chapter 13 until now, including this foreshadowing of their utter failure, was so that they would have peace in him. I tell you these things so that in me you will have peace and so that their fear would give way to courage. It's the peace that he talked about at the end of chapter 14 when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's peace that the world could not give them because the world does not have it to give. It's the peace known as shalom. It's peace that reflects wholeness and completeness, contentment and satisfaction and rest. It's peace with God and therefore peace in God. It's peace that does not depend on the disciples' faithfulness to Christ, but on Christ's faithfulness to them. It's peace that surpasses understanding. It's peace that comes when their joy is made complete in him. But the promise of peace is only as good as Christ's ability to keep that promise, right? You ever promise something and then haven't been able to come through on it? The promise of peace is only as good as Christ's ability to keep that promise. That's why these last words in verse 33 are lasting words. You will have suffering, Jesus said. He's honest about that. You're going to have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Only a conquering king can bring peace to his people. Only a conquering king can bring peace to his people. So we have to ask the question, is Jesus your conquering king? Every human being who ever lived except for Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has been enslaved to sin because we have all turned our backs on God and each one of us has gone his or her own way. Sin, Satan, and death, these are all enemies that we are not strong enough, not clever enough, not capable of conquering on our own. There's no deed that can redeem us. There's no right nor magic word. Only by the blood of Jesus can salvation be secured. We sang that this morning. 
That's why the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to conquer what you and I could not. He came to rescue us from slavery to sin and Satan and death by taking our sin upon himself, by letting his heel be crushed by the serpent, and by dying under the righteous wrath of God to pay our debt and remove our guilt. Listen to me. If you truly want peace in your life, then the conquering king must conquer your heart. So why not surrender to him this morning? Confess to him your need for him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Because Christ is the conquering king, all those who are in him are conquerors with him, more than conquerors in him. That doesn't mean that nothing can hurt us in this life. We need to understand that. We feel pain, don't we? Doesn't mean that nothing can hurt us in this life. We are well aware of that reality. But it does mean that nothing can ultimately defeat us. Because in order to do so, it would have to defeat Jesus. Why? Because we are in him and he is in us. Nothing fights us separately from fighting Jesus. If you're in Christ, do you know that? I think we more often than not need to be reminded of that reality. So why not remind ourselves once again? Shall we? Romans 8, 28 through 39. We know that all things, I will add including the very worst things, work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, so that we would, he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Ask, and you will receive. So who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died under our condemnation. But even more, he's been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He asks the Father as well. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We have suffering in this world. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, you will have trouble in this world. But you need not have trouble in your heart because the king of your heart has revealed his reign in the world through his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, his return to the Father. Right now, right now, 
even as these words come out of my mouth, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, governing all things, listen, including the very worst things, for the good of his church, for the good of his people, and for his own glory, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So be courageous. Be courageous because Jesus has conquered the world. Listen, being courageous doesn't mean that we go storming the gates of hell. There's an element of foolishness to that. Being courageous means that we stand firm in the one who is already one. He's already one. He's already one. A life in Christ is not free from suffering, but it is a life full of joy and peace. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our conquering king. This isn't a hollow cliche that can't deliver anything beyond warm fuzzies. Praise God for that. It is a rock-solid promise that points us to the one who delivers us from all things, all things, and makes all things new. So let's ask, shall we? Let's ask, and we will receive so that our joy may be complete in Jesus. He's told us these things so that in him we may have peace, real, lasting peace. May his last words to his disciples here become lasting words in our minds and hearts, and may we remember that no one and no thing can take away what Christ himself has given us. Why? Because Christ our conquering king has given us himself. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you that even now as we come to you, we do so by your means, by means of your son who gave himself for us, who rose for our justification, that we can come and stand before you as righteous in him and make our requests and petitions known to you that we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us into all truth, teaches us who Christ is and what Christ wants. The same Son who shares in all things with you as the Father and the Spirit and that we get to share in all things with. And so we pray, help us, Lord. We ask that you would help us to ask so that our joy may be complete in Christ. And we pray that even as we do, that you would change and reshape our hearts in the asking so that we may have true and lasting peace in our King who's conquered and who will never give up the throne. Lord, we, we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.